everyone, I'm Dr. Bo Houston, and you're listening to Recruited, the voice of the Bridges Lane Center. We support recruits and their families define a sports-to-purpose pipeline. Join me to discuss the pre-COVID college recruiting experiences of young Black women student-athletes to provide a post-COVID response. If you are interested in performance, leadership, advocacy, celebration, and education for young Black women student-athletes and their teammates and the communities that serve them, welcome and settle in. Today on the show, we're going to start with the story of Jordan McNair. Jordan McNair is a young man who was recruited and enrolled to play football at the University of Maryland in the summer of 2017. Here's a clip of his father, Marty McNair, talking to ESPN. Well, obviously, you know, I feel a little bit more passionate about that. You know, when a coach comes to your house and they sit at your table, and tell you that, you know, all these great things and, you know, especially you sit here, you know, right before signing day to ensure that, you know, the kid is still, that your child is still want to hold their commitment to them, um, to that particular school. And, you know, when you sit at the table and, and all these things, you ask questions and you ask, you know, you tell the coach, well, I'm turning my, my child over to you, you know, and I expect you to develop him more you know, uh, mentally, you know, physically, emotionally. On May 29, 2018, Mr. Jordan McNair suffered a fatal heat stroke at a University of Maryland football team workout, led by the same coaches who sat across the table from his parents and promised to take care of him just one year prior. The time from the onset of symptoms following the seventh 110-yard repetition at 4.54 p.m. to departure in the ambulance en route to Washington Adventist was one hour, 39 minutes, and three seconds. And when that doesn't happen, you know, there's no acceptance that, there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for that one at all. Jordan's death forced the university to solicit an external audit, resulting in the University of Maryland introducing a new healthcare model. Dr. Yvette Rooks was the final piece to this puzzle of transformation and was therefore recruited from her post as chief medical officer for Rutgers University Athletics, where she provided leadership and clinical care for sports medicine staff and primary care for student athletes. Dr. Rooks' sports to purpose pipeline is defined by an unwavering commitment to follow through for community, a journey that has landed her in the seat of head team physician and assistant director of the University of Maryland Health Center. I always had a passion for the sciences because it intrigued me. I always liked going to the doctor's office because I liked the, the little tools that they had. I liked the conversations that were had because he would, you know, ask my mother to leave the room. And I'd be like, yeah, get out the room, mom. <laughs> my doctor, you know, me and my doctor. Her new position at the University of Maryland oversees all aspects of sports medicine, including athletic training, sports nutrition, and mental health. That means it's her job to make sure that what happened to Jordan McNair never happens again for all student athletes. You were at the University of Maryland and then you left and then you were recruited, if you will, back. Now, the new healthcare model 
if I'm correct, was either a result of or accelerated by the death of Jordan McNair, football player. Considering your previous relationship with the University of Maryland, what do you remember feeling or thinking about when you heard that news? When I heard, I was devastated because I knew that there were policies and procedures in place. You know, I I don't know what happened. People very close to me were involved. And so I really didn't want to know what happened because, you know, hindsight's always 20-20. Right. And we know a place, but I was hurt that that could happen. Right. Right. You know, and it wasn't like, well, thank God I wasn't there because, I mean, it could happen anywhere. But I think that, like, anything we do, we have to do a critical review and one of the first things that I did when I came back here is I wanted to know, I wanted to see every last document, every last reviewer, every last piece of paper, every last person who they interviewed about what transpired prior to that, during that, and immediately after. Because whatever needs to be corrected, we need you to correct now. Right. Because I, I didn't want to leave any space for error for any illness. I wanted us to be on our A game. Now, we know that things happen. You know, that, that's just how you know people get in car accidents and stuff. But preventable stuff, I want us to be, be key on. And again, you know, I'm not here to say that it wouldn't have happened if I was there. You right. know, you just never know. And I'm, believe me, I don't have that much cockiness about me. But we reviewed it. We have special programs now that we review, you know, heat and, and down men on the field and, and all this stuff. But I think what's most important is the transparency that I have with the coaches and the transparency with the strength and conditioning staff and the transparency with the athletic department. Because if we're not sharing information on a daily basis, we're not doing our job. The thing about Dr. Rooks is that long before the University of Maryland hired her to support their student athletes, she was raised in a sports household. And it's that experience that she brings to the field every day. So my father played for Morgan State, played football. And so I think that sport um, was kind of ingrained because he was one of the founding uh, members of the Boys and Girls Club in White Plains, New York. Wow. uh, Where I grew up. So, you know, that branch of it. And so he was always planning activities for the inner city youth because he had a passion for service. So I I would always tag along. I mean, I I was young. But I was tagging along. And so, you know, back then, sport wasn't always as organized as it is now. So you had handball, you had kickball, you played with paper plates and the ball. Those were the bases. So you just learned how to improvise. <laughs> yeah. You know, play, you know, basketball inside, double dutch, you know, all the things that we did in the city. Right, right. So I had always had an interest in uh, physical fitness, sport. So I used to play anything, they, we got signed up for the rec leagues because it kept us out of trouble. I mean, I didn't grow up in, in, a, in a bad neighborhood, but, you know, you can be a good kid in a good neighborhood and still get in trouble. That's right. <laughs> so, um, and I was fortunate to have, you know, both my parents. My father did die when I was 16, so that crushed me. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was in middle school or high school, I played volleyball and softball and at volleyball in college and at Duke. But my dad died my senior year in high school, and it affected me greatly. I, I mean, I just, I just came back from New York. Uh, I was in New York over Labor Day weekend to visit my mother. And I went out to the cemetery like four times. I was there like five days. And she went out with me twice. 
And just to talk, I mean, I know that there's just remains of a body there and his spirit and his soul is in heaven, but at least I have something I can relate to. So I could talk. I sat down there, I was drinking a soda and I'm laughing with him and telling him what's going on and that I thank him for his leadership every day, you know, and for his guidance. And when I say, dad, what would you do in this situation? I sit there and I think about it. You know, I'm in constant reflection of the positive memories that he put on me. Now, granted, he was, he wasn't my best friend because he was my father, right? you know, uh, but as a father, he, he set some really strong foundation in those short 16 years. And it's not by, I wouldn't say it was by discipline, it's just the way he carried himself and how I saw him interact with people. And I saw him have a presence, mm-hmm. you know, he listened well, but he also had his say in how he just dealt with people, even if it was in disagreement. You know, I'm sure as a police officer, he had his arrogance and he had his disciplined ways, but he was gentle with me as his daughter, but also strong with me as knowing that I'm going to be this black woman growing up in the world. I mean, he knew I wanted to be a doctor, you know, growing up in this world where, you know, I'm going to have to prove myself over and over and over again. But he, he didn't say it was okay, but he said, you'll be okay doing it. Right. So how did you decide where to go next? So I didn't want to be that far away from my mother. So I ended up trading all that in and going to the State University of New York at Albany. And I played volleyball there. Right. I would say that, you know, I was going to college anyway. I was fortunate enough that I had both my parents. My mother, my father graduated from Morgan. My mom went to Hampton. So they have a love story in their own right, you know, going to HBCUs and, and meeting up. I got a Delta and I got a Q. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get an opportunity to pledge, but I'm trying to get my butt in medical school. So, right. um, but I played at State University of North Albany and I always had a passion for the sciences because it intrigued me. I always liked going to the doctor's office because... I liked the little tools that they had. I liked the conversations that were had because he would, you know, ask my mother to leave the room. And I'd be like, yeah, get out the room, mom. Talk to my doctor, you know, me and my doctor. So what was it that made you really dedicate your life to healthcare and become a doctor? I want to hear more about your journey. I had just that interest of, you know, having a conversation with folks and be able to know the family history, to know some of the, the challenges they were having, but also be that sleuth and try to investigate why someone had high blood pressure or why someone had diabetes. That always intrigued me because by my training, I am a family doctor, you know, and I would not have it any other way because I love the family dynamic. I love my training, all of my training up until 2017 in the inner city, Baltimore, you know, where I took care of people who didn't have nothing. Right, right. And that just was my passion, you know, doing sports medicine, but also I had a very robust family medicine practice. I had patients who were drug addicted. I had patients who had HIV. I had patients who had, you know, hypertension, high blood pressure, smoke cigarettes, you know, were looking at me like, Doctor, I'm going to die anyway, so let me die what I'm doing. I'm like, no, 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 we're not going to have this. We have to outlive these numbers. But, you know, in the state of Maryland, we had, you know, black women in Baltimore whose average age of of living was 63 and 20 miles away in one of the wealthiest counties in Baltimore, I mean, in Maryland and Montgomery County, you know, white women living to 83. So, you know, what's going on? Wow. 
it's the access to health care. It's, it's the lack of having people working in an urban environment who give a shit about their, their people. Right. And, you know, I was one of them that cared. And I was also doing my sports medicine at College Park. And I loved, you know, working with this population, too. This is this is the well. This is the people who want to get back out there on the track, in gymnastics, playing football, playing volleyball, you know. So it really gave me a balance of the best of both worlds. Due to some changes in the delivery of healthcare, I got pissed back in 2017 that I left the University of Maryland because I was forced, not forced, well, you know, they, you got to see a patient every 15 minutes. Well, I can't do what I can do in 15 minutes. Right. I was like, it's been nice. So <laughs> I left and I went to Rutgers and really just focused on uh, sports medicine. I was there as the chief medical officer. And I was doing a great job, really liking it and hate me well, but I was really missing being back here in this area, being, you know, where my contacts were. So, you know, God blessed me with the opportunity to come back to just strictly the college uh, at College Park. So I've been here now for about eight months, just redeveloping their new model. So make a long story short, the new model is that my athletic trainers, my sports nutritionists, my sports psychologists and mental health providers no longer report to the authorities in the health department, in the athletic department. It all goes through our university health center now. So they really have no fear. They have autonomously can make decisions and not feel the replications of coaches or the athletic department. So they can do what they really think is the best. And I got their back. Right. Um, for the, right. For the athlete and not just putting them back out there because a coach says, they need to be out there. So, you know, we're doing it. We're, we're learning. We're writing the playbook as we go along. It's been interesting. It's been engaging. It's been exciting. I think that the coaches respect that. I am invited on the leadership calls weekly, and we, we go over that. I serve as a mentor who, who anybody who wants to go in any of the physical lines, whether it be PT, nutrition, sports psych, you know, it's all wrapped up and together. You can't have one without the other. Right. So, Do you find that it will be a model that catches on at other universities or is it still too early to tell how other universities will maybe follow or take certain elements of your new approach? Well, Boston University has this model and it's what I've been, I've been talking to their athletic trainers and their doctors there. There's another African-American primary care sports medicine gun that's in training provided there called, her name is Alicia Green, and we contacted because we were both asked to do a webinar on COVID, and so now I'm like, oh my God, there's another one of you! (laughs) (laughs) There's not that many of us out there. Exactly. So, we connected. So, I would say that that's going to be the trend now, because, you know, when an athletic trainer has to report to a coach, to the AD, there's a fear factor that, who, who do I please, the student athlete or the person who pay, writes my paycheck? Exactly. So now we're going to see more of these models, and we have a lot of them that are in the Big Ten that are have this medical model. They may not call it a medical model. They may call it, you know, they report to the hospital or they report to some other medical authority, I'm saying the word authoritarian or whatever it is, as opposed to reporting to non-medical people. Right. So... Um, this is something that the NATA, the National Athletic Trainers Association, has been pushing, and I think it's going to catch on like wildfire because it protects them. We'll see longevity in that, and it also uh, gives me feet in the ground because there's really no counter back. If I say you can't go, you can't go. Right. 
I remember, you know, as a student athlete and as a coach, so being on both sides of those, you know, those conversations, actually, they were probably more like negotiations was so tough because you want what's best. And and in my role as an assistant coach, it's really the head coaches, you know, making these final decisions and the back and forth. And so I do feel a sense of um, relief for the student athlete, knowing that there's someone there, as you say, that has your back. My question for you also is as a black woman in that um, representation in that medical space, as a medical doctor, do you find it easier to navigate these conversations with either side? Or do you find it to be, you know, just based on the facts, based on what it is, and it, it wouldn't be a difficult conversation to have otherwise? So I want to say that I was a pioneer, and I can't, I can't do anything. Um, I mean, I don't know what look up Wikipedia or anything like that. But I think back in 1998, when I finished my fellowship and was down here at College Park, I think I was maybe the only African American female who was a team physician in the country. I'm not surprised. And, you know, it could have been. I think there are a few more now. I don't know how many are in Division One especially in FBS and football. I know in the Big Ten calls, I'm the only one. Right, right. I'm one of two females, but I'm, on, and I, I'm light-skinned with freckles, but when you hear me talk, you, you know what I am. <laughs> um, so I would say early in my career, because I was a single mom, I had this beautiful 23-year-old uh, daughter. I had to learn how to play nice in the sandbox. Right. And so I probably was pushed around a little bit. But as I, my skin got thicker and I realized that I really have to be the voice for the student athlete, I have no problems having a conversation. I have no problem standing up to my AD because he and my deputy AD, which is a she, are very transparent with me and expect me to be the medical expert. And this is not, you know, being cocky or anything. It's just my confidence. You know, I've been in this game now 24 years that they look to me to have the tough conversation. And so I, I, whenever I go into something, I'm well prepared. And right. I think that that's what we have to teach our young women is that, yes, we wear skirts, you know, because that's what I wear to work and heels. And, you know, I don't try. I, I, I'm still very much have my feminine. I'm also six feet tall. So that also, you know, helps me out a little bit. Right. But we also have a voice. We just have to make sure that our knowledge is intact. We make that awesome eye contact. And we know we've researched it because we have to be 10 times as prepared. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't change, does it? No. Oh, no. No. <laughs> so speaking of young black women specifically, so we're talking high school age, maybe that early part of college, freshman, sophomore year. In your experience in that 24 years, what do you find are some of the more significant health concerns that this age group tends to face. So young black women in that high school to college age range that um, maybe they should be paying more attention to right now. Pregnancy. Well Having unprotected sex. And, uh, you know, STDs, not getting their preventive health care, not getting their pap smear. I think that, you know, we don't really see the chronicity, the chronic ailments like hypertension or diabetes. We see the things that we can prevent. Right. Like, so don't have unprotected sex. There is no reason to have unprotected sex these days. 
right. there's enough stuff out there, the information's out there. Okay. So it's that kind of do your self breast exams because young people do get breast cancer. Anxiety and depression. If you're not feeling like yourself for a period of time and you start to have these thoughts of self-harm or harming somebody, talk to somebody. Because these are the conversations that are not discussed in the African-American population. But anxiety is four times more common in women. And we start to see it at a very young age because of social media, because of the demands that are put on young people, because what's happening in this world. I mean, we have politicians who are acting like kindergartners. Right. We right. have social injustice, and now we have a pandemic. Yeah, it's um, it's overwhelming for an adult. How does a person's and their family's personal insurance work as a student athlete? Um, when I was competing, I remember having to bring my insurance cards, you know, during the physicals at the beginning of the year. And then I never knew if they used them, you know, over the course of the years for all the injuries and surgeries and things that happened. So can you explain how should they understand their health insurance working or their lack of health insurance? So I don't know if it's a policy at all colleges, but I know at University of Maryland, everyone, every student has to have health insurance. And if you don't have health insurance, you can buy the school's policy. As it works in athletics, that if you come in without health insurance, the athletic department buys a policy for you. So buys the policy that the student health would offer. So then every student athlete is insured. So if there's an injury or if you go to the doctors or if you come see me and we bill, we're billing that primary insurance first. Athletics also has a secondary insurance policy that picks up what the primary doesn't. Or if the primary doesn't pick up anything, that secondary pays it because the key thing is for the athlete and the athlete's family not to get a bill. Right. Right. So whatever. So everybody has insurance that's billed first, whether it's, whether it's Medicaid or whether it's, you know, commercial insurance, whatever's not paid there, they submit to a secondary insurance guarantor that pays the rest of that premium. That makes sense. Is that the same if a person's not on a scholarship? It is the same if the person's not on a scholarship, but that person not on a scholarship is probably going to have to get health insurance on their own or have their parents' health insurance. The FI department's not going to purchase that policy for them if they come in uninsured. Oh, okay. Okay. Good to know. But if they get injured and they're on the squad and not a scholarship, the secondary insurance will pay the difference of what their primary insurance won't, won't pay because they've made the squad. Right. Okay. So once you're on the roster, then you fall into a different category versus a person maybe um, trying out for a team. Right. So trying out for a team, and if you're not scholarship, you get hurt, you're on your own. Got it. Hope you have insurance. Is it better for a young person, so a student athlete, who doesn't necessarily have access to these resources to be on campus at this time, medical resources of any type, to be on campus at this time, or is it best to have the campuses closed so that student athletes can try to avoid being exposed to the coronavirus? Okay. Now here, you know, you're going to get me in trouble, maybe fired, but that's okay. No, that's not okay. <laughs> I stay masked all day long and gloved up because I don't want to get it. Yes, yes. And, I'm and I have a baseball team that like 14 guys have it already, you know, so. 
I turned on the TV and football was on and I felt differently this time. Normally, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, I don't know. I couldn't watch it. It was just something about it. I said, you know what? I don't feel good about this. I don't like it. I couldn't yeah. do it. As a parent, my kids will be home. Okay? Okay. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, because I work for a major university, I can't answer it in that way right now because I'm in the I'm in the midst of some stuff. So if you're asking me as a parent, Madison will be home. Fair enough. I don't realize how much we love school <laughs> as parents. Oh, you're going to go somewhere for eight hours. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> exactly. All praise to the teachers. All praise to the teachers. So... Lastly, I am working to gather a list of significant questions for these young individuals to access. When I was coaching and, you know, going through the recruiting process, I would meet with parents and students and ask them, so do you have any questions? And, you know, they never seemed to have many questions, you know, one or two. And I always wondered about that. So what I'm doing with some of these interviews is asking if you would contribute one or two questions or topics, you know, based on what we've talked about today, that you think are are relevant for a young black woman to ask or investigate or have some understanding of when they're making their college choices? Well, I I would ask if they're if they're, you know when they're looking at colleges, do they have support services on campus? And when I say support services, strong counseling programs. Because they will, they will need it. Right, right. I think that is fair enough. I've been at <clears throat> a few different types of universities and have seen the the difference in the way that those services are presented. But I do agree that maybe in that decision making phase, so maybe as a junior in high school or early in your senior year, you haven't really come to a point where maybe you've thought about some of the things that you need. But maybe it's also a point to be made where that should be encouraged in the recruiting visits. So like a responsibility yeah. of the the recruiter to demonstrate what services whether, are available. Or the health center, you know, the student health center, because your students first. Exactly. I, you know, I just think that we have to raise the level of confidence of our young black women. I think that they are knocked down by society. I mean, you know, as women in general, we make 50 cents on a dollar that, that men make. And then as African-Americans, you know, especially when we our hair is natural. Like I may be blonder, but my hair is very natural, very kinky, very curly, that it's okay. Right. It is okay. And I think that sometimes because of that, and I think, what's her name? Tracy Ross. Yeah. She came out with something. It is okay because we should be defined by who we are, not what we look like, like what we bring to the table. So I think we need to continue to work on that because, you know, I know that I'm seen when I work in certain certain rooms as the black woman first. Right. I'm not as the doctor first. And you know what? That's their problem. Exactly. Exactly. I can no longer worry about that. I love that. And I, I see it in so many different spaces. And I do kind of feel like in society, we as a group of women, are just taking that and moving it forward on our own. Like we're not waiting on you to um, give us permission to be okay with this. We're just here and we're gonna show up and show out and do our thing. And um, it's nice to be connected with people that share that um, and give you space to be, you know, your excellent self. So I am definitely on board with that. 
Those are great final words. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Recruited. Next week, we will be hearing another story that sheds light on what it means to be recruited. Until then, share this episode, join the community, and leave a review. For information found in this episode, contact me directly at bow at bridgeslane.org. Check out the show notes and visit bridgeslane.org backslash recruited. Get recruited wherever you get your podcasts. Want to see photos and profiles of our emerging prospects? Follow us on Instagram at Dr. Bo Houston. And as always, if you have any questions or would like to be featured on our show, send us a note. Until next time, remember, you are worthy to win.